All right, so Proverbs asks a question that you have to answer for yourself, and this, and this is the question. What is going to lead me to the wisest and most satisfying life? Luckily, Proverbs gives us the answer to this question, which is in the very first chapter in the seventh verse, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The goal of Proverbs is to help you see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of a wise and satisfying life. But Proverbs has also brought up the flip side of the coin, right? You and I, without God's intervention, are fools. And the sooner that God works in our lives to realize this, the better. We do not naturally want to sit underneath someone's instruction. That's why a lot of us in our group environments, we get itchy during these 30, 40, 50 minutes, or when Vernon preaches in a couple weeks, maybe 25. You and I want to be our own authority, right? It's ingrained into the DNA of American culture. We want to be our own self-governing authority. And therefore, no one should be able to tell you what to do with your body. That's the biggest rage right now in American culture. No one can tell you what to do with your marriage. No one can tell you to do what to do with your family. And no one can tell you what to do with your money. But Proverbs says, that's the life of the fool. That is the path of the fool. Fools despise godly wisdom and instruction. And this is especially true about the nature of sex and the nature of sexuality. God's wisdom about sex is going to challenge your desires and challenge your understanding about the very nature of lust. Because I know it's already been about 100 seconds or so and you're thinking, well, I don't struggle with these things. But we have to remember what is the underneath a life of adultery and sex and sexuality is a nature of lust. And lust is desiring something or someone that is out of God's order for your life. Lust is not desiring something too much oh, I want this thing so much, I just want to get it. I'll do whatever I can to get it. That's not what lust is. Lust is not desiring something as you should, as your creator God intended and designed for you too. This means, therefore, that all people in all places at one point or another is going to struggle with the temptation of lust. Lust for people, lust for things. But today, uniquely, specifically, we're going to apply this to the relationship between a man and a woman. You can see kind of flow. We went Proverbs 31 the past two weeks and womanhood, and then we're going into marriage. And you'll see we're going to go next week. We'll be applying the life of lust, not to sex, but to things, specifically with substance abuse. We'll get there next Sunday, what Proverbs says about it. Proverbs acknowledges the beauty and the brokenness of life. And this includes the two who become one flesh relationship that God calls the marriage covenant. We're going to see that this relationship was designed by God, for God, to point to the joy and point to the satisfaction that you and I as Christians experience in the Lord Jesus. That's the beauty of it, and it is an exciting thing. That is what marriage does when it is clicking on all cylinders. But you know Proverbs acknowledges the beauty and the brokenness of life and relationships. 
But here's the brokenness. Humanity has a broken view of the most fundamental relationship that God has given to us, male and female relationships. And only the power of the gospel over time can change this. As I've said many times before, you and I are that guitar. And through use, overuse, and misuse, it can become out of tune, which is why I'm so happy that our worship leaders selected Come Now Fount this morning. Because as Christians, we acknowledge we get out of tune on so many different areas of life, and we need a tuner to put us back to a pitch that we are designed to play at, right? Let's take a look at this phone for a moment. You like my Lord of the Rings background? You know I'm a nerd. You know that. You know that. This phone was created. It did not create itself. No thing really created itself. All things have a cause. Okay. This phone has a creator, and the creator designed this phone for specific usages, right? Specific functions. And as you use this phone, the creator of this phone also gave it the capacity to run on, its, on a power source for a certain amount of time. But depending upon how you use it, overuse it, misuse it, the original power source that is in this phone is going to drain over time, right? If you want to continue to use this, your phone is going to need to be charged. Luckily, the designer of this phone has a solution for that. It has a way that when this loses the charge and can no longer function the power on its own, you can recharge it, right? And luckily, there is a port right here that when my phone has lost its charge, I can plug a cord into it that connects to electricity to recharge it so I can continue to use it in the way that the phone creator designed for it to be used, right? Now, here's the thing, though. Humanity kind of has a problem. You see, we are like people who want to take our phones and we want to charge it our way. I don't even know what type of power source this is. Anybody know? This little three-prong, what it's called? It's just weird. It's a computer one. Power is like just normal computer stuff. No matter my heart's desire, no matter my heart's intention, no matter what I want, no matter how I feel, I can do this all day, and it's never going to charge this phone. It's not. Oh, this is the right color. This is, this is getting closer, right? This is getting closer to design and, or, and what this is intended for, right? This looks like an Apple cord. It is. But you know what? I may want to charge my phone with this cable. Nope. It's not USB or whatever this one is. And um, this right here? No. It doesn't charge. Oh, I can try to do this one. Well, let me just get this USB-C thing. And, but you know what? No matter how hard I want it to go in, it's not going to charge, right? The designer of this phone has designed one and only one port for this to be charged so that you can use it. I think it's called Lightning. This one's called Lightning, I think, right? You're like, duh, pastor. But here's the thing. We simply accept this to be true, right? Our phones. But we simply reject God as our creator and his intended design for gender, sex, and sexuality. We're willing to do this so easily, so blindly, accepting how this was designed. 
We're so simply willing to reject the greatest creator, the greatest designer, who created the most brilliant and beautiful of all things, men and women, and we simply reject his design. We gotta ask, why are you and I like this, right? It all goes back to Adam and Eve, which is why we push that Adam and Eve are real historical people because it helps us understand our flaws, our fallenness, our brokenness, and our beauty when we acknowledge these are real historical people and not just myths that we have to learn from them, just good morals that we pull out from them. Our desire for things is out of order. We swap out God as primary and substitute him for other things. So if God has given you a spouse today, which is a beautiful thing, it's not an ultimate thing, but it's a beautiful thing, we are going to be tempted to replace them with other people and other things. And when we do this, we prove that it's our desire to be our own authority. We hear about God's design, but we want to do things our way. Despite what American culture thinks, there is only one thing that can bring life back to us, that can restore the brokenness that any culture, any race, any ethnic group, deep down their original stories and myths, they acknowledge the brokenness of life. There's only one thing that can bring power back to us, that can restore us, that can bring us back to life, especially about sex, especially about sexuality. And it isn't medication, and it isn't treatment. It isn't activism, and it isn't legislation. It isn't the freedom to express yourself however you want to express yourself. All of those things are like trying to charge your phone with an old computer cable. The only thing that is going to bring life back is a connection to the right power source. And as Christians, we believe that that right power source is Jesus. To say it the way that Jesus would say it, or how we sung about congregationally, is that Jesus alone is living water. Jesus alone is bread of life. The adapter that connects us to him is his word and his Holy Spirit. Today we're going to see both the beauty and the brokenness of a life that has no charge left in it. But it thinks that's actually fully charged and living out its design. And we're also going to see the toll that it takes on people. How it, the toll it takes on us. And the most fundamental relationship that God has given to us. But then at the end, we're going to see the hope. We're going to see the hope that God provides for all of us when we acknowledge we too are fools. We want to do things according to our design instead of God's design. Okay? That's where we're going Proverbs 5. Let's jump in. Our proposition today is that those who fear God, they will display faithfulness in their relationships because they've experienced Jesus as their living water. Let me provide the context for Solomon's wisdom on sex and sexuality today. I want to go back to Proverbs 5, verses 1 and 7. Solomon says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Don't depart from, my, from the words of my mouth. For 3,000 years, Solomon's Proverbs have been used to train the next generation of Jewish boys and girls. Now, you and I know, as readers of the Old Testament, we know the tragedy of Solomon, right? We know the beauty and the brokenness of the life of Solomon. 
wisest king, most influential Israel in all of her splendor during his reign. But Solomon was also a polygamist, right? Where did he learn that from? He learned that from his dad. His dad was a polygamist as well. David was a man after God's own heart. But David's heart at times and his desires were out of order and out of step or out of tune with God's desires for his life. Both can be true in a Christian. You can have a heart for God and sometimes you go out of pitch. That's David's life. That was also his son's life. This means that David and Solomon are every bit as broken as we are sexually. And I've said this before, and actually the last time I said this, there are people in our church that are no longer here. But I'm going to say it again. Heterosexuals can be just as broken as homosexuals about sexuality. We cannot say that those who have the exclusive understanding and perfect understanding of sexuality is only heterosexuals. Because David and Solomon were polygamists, and they were heterosexuals, and they got it all wrong. They got it all wrong. Solomon, therefore, at the end of his life, has this desire for his son to learn from his mistakes. His proverbs provide us with a foundation to see that God is present in all areas of life. Whether we think we are alone driving in our cars, or at work, or whatever we're doing on Saturday night, that God is present in all areas of life, and that is especially true of our sexuality because he's the designer of our sexuality. Proverbs teaches us a foundational truth, that our brokenness as humans, it reaches far down into our sexuality. And we've discussed this before on a Wednesday night. That's the essence of what total depravity means, or radical corruption. That the corruption which Adam and Eve cause in our lives, it is radical. It goes deep down at the very core of who we are, and it touches everything. Therefore, God's word can only be the one objective truth that we have to rely on, on the ever-changing ideas that culture has about sexuality. God created humanity, gender, and sex, and therefore God is the final authority on it. He has final say-so. Like all matters of life, the wise know this. Those who fear God know this, and they depend on God for instruction. It's not that they're perfectly tuned all the time, but they know where to go to to be retuned. It's not that they keep a perfect charge all day long. They know the right power source to go back to to continue on life and its functionality. But there is hope for those who fear God because they listen to what you're doing right now. You're putting yourself in a position to listen to the word of God, but then they also act on the word of God. So the wisdom today is this. Sex and sexuality are so essential that it has eternal consequences. Let me share with you just a couple of verses from Solomon before we get into our text. He says this in verses 3 through 5. He says, The lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. In the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. But this is the verse I wanted to share with you. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Solomon tells us the end of those foolish enough to engage in sexuality according to their ideas instead of God's ideas. Their end clearly is Sheol. And that person holds on to Sheol's feet. So why is your understanding of sex and sexuality so important and so vital? Solomon tells us at the end of all people who order their desires their way above God's way, 
Their end is Sheol. The fool will reject the faithful teaching of God about sex and relationships. And the ultimate reason why is that they have not truly experienced Jesus as living water. They are too focused and too fixated on other fountains for the satisfaction of their soul. But the gospel is a redirection. The gospel is a pivot, right? That's why when we went through the gospel of John, we pivoted, right? It's a pivot from the wrong fountain source to the right fountain source. So let's get started this morning. Let's get to our first point. We're going to see in the set of verses we're going to focus on that God refreshes the wise to enjoy the relationships that he has given to them. There used to be a time in human history where the culture followed the church because the church led the way in the arts, in music, in literature, in learning, and education. But a shift happened post-Renaissance and here in America with the Enlightenment, that the, the church began to follow the culture. And for some reason, Americans do think that the American life is the joyful, happy pursuit of life and liberty and happiness. And the life of the Christian is a lackluster life. The life of the Christian is the joyless life, where God restricts everything that you are supposed to do. But I do believe that there's still a Christians in America to straighten out the narrative that truly the Christian life is the most enjoyable life. It is truly. But the Christian life is feasting and enjoying and drinking from the best of all fountains, and it's just spilling over to everything in life. So in point one, we're going to learn a principle. Relationships are like fountains. God intended the relationship between a man and a woman to be a fountain that points to the greatest fountain that that man and that woman can ever experience, the fountain of living water. That is Christ Jesus. See, there is a direct connection between the enjoyment you experience in Jesus as your fountain, your ultimate fountain, and how that shows up, spills over into that most important relationship that God has given to you, which would be your spouse, your husband, or your wife. Let's take a look at verses 15 and 18. Solomon says, Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Does that sound like Christian marriage is lackluster? No, absolutely not. But look at the images that Solomon uses here. Water, cisterns, wells, all of these images are meant to be evocative in you. It helps you understand the nature of sexual relationships. It's about thirst. It's about hunger. It's about satisfaction. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, people didn't have the Culligan man deliver water bottles to the house. They had to walk to the well and literally pull water from the ground in order to do whatever today's chores were. Solomon uses this to teach us a dynamic about the relationship between a husband and wife. It's daily it's arduous. It's one of the most difficult things I have ever done. And I can say this because she's next door right now. <laughs> a husband and a wife are meant to be each other's fountain. But if you go outside of God's order of desire, for some of us, though, this is a good thing, is to make that fountain the ultimate fountain or to put other fountains above her or above him. 
A husband and wife are meant to go to this fountain time and time again, and this fountain alone to quench their thirst. And God desires for this relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, to be blessed. He calls on the husband to rejoice in the wife of his youth. Dedicate your life to your spouse. Make it your aim to enjoy her or him, ladies, above all other relationships. Yes, even that of your children. And your marriage will be blessed. God promises to refresh the wise constantly through their enjoyment that they experience in their relationship with their spouse. So men, rejoice in your wife today, right? Many daughters have done nobly, but you, my dear, you excel them all, right? It's not hyperbole, it's affection. And women, rejoice in your husbands. That's the call. For some reason, God has designed this relationship to be a source, a fountain. But let's turn to Jesus for a moment and to his wisdom, just for a little moment, to see how he responded to the beauty and brokenness of human sexuality. We went through this chapter for weeks a couple years ago when we were savoring ourselves through the Gospel of John. Think back to John 4. Jesus and his disciples are on the route back up to Galilee, and they intentionally decide to go through Samaria, which is a no-no for Jews. This is all about race, ethnicity, superiority, the gospel, sexuality. Jesus stops at Jacob's well, and Jesus sends his disciples into town to get food and come on back. Jesus has an agenda. He's out for something. He is sovereign. He knows exactly what's going to happen this day. A Samaritan woman approaches Jacob's well from a distance She's doing her daily chore of drawing water. This is an interaction that is all about sex and sexuality and race and gender that will forever change the Samaritan woman and forever give us insight about the essential nature of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus asks this woman for a drink. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh, Jesus, Uh uh-uh. She is blown away because Jews don't ask Samaritans for a drink of water. They distance themselves from Samaritans. They're half-bloods. Jews are the superman, and Samaritans are subhuman. But listen to how Jesus speaks to her. Just like Solomon, he uses water and well images to teach her about himself. And let's get it. So in John 4, we're going to look at verse 10, verse 13, and verse 14. Jesus says, if he just knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would give you living water. Living water. And then he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's the promise. And that's the promise maker and the promise keeper. This means that Jesus is better than all other wells, all other fountains, all other water, because Jesus is living water. Now, we know that Sam doesn't get it. She's like, okay, Jesus, show me where this water is. I'm tired of walking to Jacob's well every day. She doesn't get it at first. Jesus is living water. Jesus is better than the water that Jacob's well can provide. 
Jesus provides better water than the fountains of sex. Jesus says, drink of me, enjoy me, experience me, and you'll never thirst again. Drink of me, and I'll become a well inside of you that you can draw water from for the rest of your life to eternal life. It's a good promise, right? But in the function of it all, we don't really believe it because we always turn to lesser things, don't we? Sam doesn't get it. We don't get it either. She thinks this because she can't see Jesus for who he really is. We've got to ask, well, why can't she? Why can't she see Jesus for who he really is? And it's because of this. Her eyes are fixed on the wrong fountain. That's why. She can't see Jesus for who he is because her eyes are fixed in the wrong place. So be careful about what you put in front of your eyes. Eventually be tempted to use that as your source for your soul. Why can't she see Jesus for who he is? Because she is a fool who has lived out her own ideas about sexuality. And she put that idea above God. You see, Sam's desires, just like your desires and my desires, are out of order. But her hope and our hope is this. The gospel, over time, reorders our desires. So Jesus presses further. He goes to her and says, bring your husband to the well. And Sam's like, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right, because you've had five husbands, and you're living with a man right now. And this man isn't your husband. This is proof that Sam has given up on God's teaching on marriage and sexuality. She has been, she has run through five husbands. We don't know the nature of the story. Was she abandoned? Was there adultery? We don't know but she has run through five husbands. She has taken a drink from five wells, and she's on her sixth right now. And none of those wells have ever filled her. It has always left her wanting more. And now she doesn't even bother with marriage as the exclusive home for sexual satisfaction. And American culture would say, Sam, this is awesome we got to tweet this. we got to tweet your story. we got to put it on social media because you are a woman who is living out her best life. You're discovering. You're learning. You're growing. You're getting better. American culture says if it feels good, do it, right? No one can tell you what to do with your body, your marriage, your relationships, your family, your kids, your money, right? But all of that is casual sex. And it's casual sex long before the American narrative that we evolved in the 1960s as a result of the sexual revolution. That's a lie. Humans have always been crazy sexually from the beginning. All it takes is reading some Genesis to figure it out, right? American culture has no issues with sex outside the commitment of marriage, so they would applaud the Samaritan woman. But you and I know who have lived any life that there is no such thing is casual sex. It's personal. It's intimate. It's binding, right? Sex has the power to build. Sex has the power to destroy. Set sex and sexuality as your ultimate value. Set anyone, anything above Jesus, and you're going to thirst again. You're going to need to get that fix again. You'll be jonesing again. And you'll not be able to see how Jesus is the only well that can truly satisfy your soul's thirst. But here's the hope. Acknowledging that you and I are sexually broken on our own, independent of God, it's not an insurmountable obstacle. There is hope. Jesus can create a well inside of you 
as he promised to the Samaritan woman, that is far better than Jacob's well. Jesus can create a well inside of you that is far better than sex your way, relationships your way, marriage your way. This is our hope. This is our hope for the singles. This is our hope for the never married. This is our hope for Christians who are married to non-Christians. The greatest well in this life isn't sex. It is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus offered himself as living water to Sam, and Sam took it. She found Jesus to be her Messiah. And like I spoke about last week, she couldn't help but talk about it to the people in her city. Because that is the nature of praise. That is the nature of enjoyment. You truly enjoy something, you're going to talk to somebody about it. So you know what happened to me pre-service this morning? As we're gathering together, just greeting each other, spending time, someone comes up to me and says, oh, I had a filet. And wasn't it one of the best filets you've had in the Tampa Bay area? Did you hear him? He said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you get it? Praise and enjoyment are incomplete until you do something about it. It's the nature of praise. And that is our hope. Sex and marriage are precious. It is beautiful. It is glorious, but it's not ultimate. Enjoy Jesus, and you will be satisfied with living water. And it will overflow to that next fountain that marriage covenant relationship. And over time, the enjoyment that you experience in Jesus above all things is going to change the way that you think. It's going to change the way that you feel. It's going to change the way you speak and act about sex and sexuality. And over time, the enjoyment that you experience in Jesus, it's going to spill over into all of your relationships, not just the marriage covenant, but all the other relationships that God has graciously put into your life so you could steward them, so you can take care of those relationships, whether it is spouse or children or church family or non-Christians or co-workers. All of those are gifts that God has put into your life to steward, to play your small parts in their Godward journey. So here's the wisdom we pull out from this. This is what we're going to draw out of the well. If God has graced you with a spouse, if God has graced you with a spouse, your primary call above all other relationships is to put yourselves in a position to enjoy each other above all other human relationships. God wants you to express the joy that you have in him by how you enjoy the other. I've said a long time for you that we need as heritage Christians to develop a theology of suffering. But what I'm pushing towards you right now is that equally, you also need to develop a theology of sex, which may mean one day we have to attack some other topics in more depth than just one isolated sermon in Proverbs. God wants you to express the joy you have in him by how you relate to the relationships that he has put into your life. So that works whether your spouse is a Christian or a non-Christian. Paul's wisdom is this. You don't know if your life as a Christian is going to be used by God to impact that unbelieving spouse. We don't know, so we live well in front of them. John's wisdom goes something like this. You cannot say that you love God whom you have not seen, and yet love your brother, that relationship, side-by-side relationship that you do see. You can't say, I love God, but then you don't love the brother in a way that honors the God that you say that you love. It's incongruence. Let's get to our application now. You ready? All right. 
The application is that the wise rely on God on every path they travel. Every path they travel. Because they acknowledge that God sees it all. He sees what I do on Monday mornings when my heart's like, oh man, I'm so tired from Sunday. All the way to what I do on Saturday night. In our application, Solomon explores why people refuse to listen to God about sex and sexuality. It comes down to this. Just like any other topic we're doing this summer, it all comes down to whether that person fears God or not. The person doesn't believe God is who he says he is, that he makes promises and he keeps promises. This person doesn't believe what God says about sex and relationships. It's beauty and it's abuse. Let's take a look at verse 20. Solomon warns his son through a question. He says, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Let me ask Solomon's question in a different way. What profit is there for you to have a view of sex that you want versus what God wants? Or what profit is there for you to do sex your way above God's way? Right? Hear me out, Heritage. I do want you to live life in a way that is most profitable for you. I do. I'm not trying to restrict your joy, your experience, of enjoyment in this life. I want you to maximize it. So let's ask, what profit is there for you to do sex your way over God's way? In Solomon's question, we find the beginning of an answer. In that moment, the embrace of a lover your way above God's way can feel exhilarating. And we want that feeling, right? You can feel excited and you can feel in control when you do things your way because you're making yourself out to be your own God like Eve wanted to do. But you and I know if we've done any living that that experience of exhilaration is short-lived, right? Right? Highs come down, buzzes wear off, right? So what does it mean when you're exhilarated by someone who is not your spouse, if God has given you a spouse. It ultimately means that you do not believe that God is present in your life. That's what that means. That's the harsh truth. It shows that you are ordering your desires your way instead of God's way. But the wise, though not perfect, though they get out of tune, though they're prone to wander, the wise rely on God because they know that he is present on every path they travel even the path of romance. For the wise, this is a comfort, but for the fool, it's an irritation, it's an inconvenience, and worse, it's something, an occasion of anger for them. So let's look at verse 21. Because Solomon says that the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. God is present in every decision that we make. Every place that we go, even decisions in the places that we go sexually, virtually, digitally, or in the flesh. No matter where we go, no matter what we do, all our ways are seen by God. He watches all paths. And it doesn't matter if you are an atheist. It doesn't matter if you're an agnostic or you're a theist. Your feelings about God doesn't make God less or more. God just is regardless of what you believe about him. He is who he says he is. So let's turn to Solomon's dad for a moment. 
in Psalm 139. So we can be convinced of this, that Father and Son are united in this. Psalm 139, David prays, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. From David's psalm, we learn that God is omnipresent. So we differ from the Hindus, for example. We don't believe that God is in the carpet, God is in the speaker, God is in the chairs, God is in the tissue, God is in the wood of this door. We can't, like, that's God right there. We're not pantheists. We believe in the omnipresence of God, that God is in all places, at all times, with all of his power. There's a difference between the two. David acknowledges it here. He's in the highest of heavens. He is in the deepest of depths. You can leave here and go wherever you want today. And no matter what you believe about God, God is there. This is a comfort to the wise. So we hear an amen. But it's an irritation and an inconvenience for those who do not fear God. And at worst, it's an outrage. So Solomon shifts right now in his wisdom to help you as the reader understand the end the eschatological end of those who do not turn and experience God as their ultimate fountain. Verse 22. He says that his own iniquities will capture. He will be held by the cords of his sin. I gather on Wednesday, we discussed the long-term impact of drifting, right? How one small drift, if you do not tend to your soul or allow the church, allow the pastor or pastors that God has put into your life to tend to your soul, Drift happens, and it's left unaccountable. And it may be a little tiny change right now, today, and a little tiny change tomorrow, but we talked about it Wednesday, that given enough time, you will be far away from where you once were several years ago, from that one small pivot, right? This verse gives us the end of those who drift, who foolishly think that God is not watching. Eventually, the path that they take catches up with them. You see Solomon personifying sin right now? Sin captures the fool. Sin holds them by the cords. But now let's turn to the hope and the wisdom of the Hebrews writer. In Hebrews 12, he says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. Now here's the key. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The wisdom of Hebrews aligns with what Solomon is saying. Sin is traveling a path that you think God does not see. Sin is traveling a path that is well-traveled by others, but isn't God's best for you. Jesus says, wide is the gate, right? Here's the reality of sin and why Solomon is personifying it. Sin encumbers you. It brings a heaviness to your life. It brings anxiety to your heart. Living life as if there is no God, as if God is not watching, it doesn't free you. It's a heaviness. It's not the source of peace that you need. It's the source of anxiety for you. American culture says, live life as if God is not watching, and you'll be free. Right? 
But in reality, that life actually enslaves you. It does the opposite of what you think it should do. Because then you can't live without this substance, this relationship, this hobby. You can't go five minutes without it. Because you are enslaved. It has encumbered you and entangled you. You see, sin entangles you in a spider's web that would make Shelob's lair seem like child's play. Sorry, I had to throw out my little Tolkien reference, you know. But there's hope, Heritage. There is hope. Jesus took the cross, and Hebrews tells us he took it with joy. What does that mean, and how can we follow suit? Jesus, Hebrews tells us, endured the cross, despised the shame. We went through Holy Week recently. We read and heard and listened to all that Jesus sustained and took on and absorbed during that week. How was he able to do this? Oh, oh, he's God. That's just a shortcut answer. Hebrews tells us more. He set final joy and fixed his eyes on it. And that focus of joy at the end helped him endure what he was going on in the present. And that is the method by which you and I fight everything that's less than God's best. This is how we reorder our desires in a way that will maximize and profit our time here on this earth. The wisdom is this. To travel the path of a life well, you must fix your eyes on the same joy that Jesus fixed his eyes on. If he can withstand all the shame all the brutality, all the abuse, all the pain of crucifixion, doing this method, you can get rid of nicotine addiction, you can get rid of substance abuse, or fill in the blank of whatever you're struggling with, whatever, however your strings are out of tune, you can be retuned the same way. That's the wisdom. Jesus is the fountain that you need. Jesus is the fountain that will satisfy you. Jesus died to unencumber you, to disentangle you, to take sting and just cut through Shelob's webs. That's Jesus. That is our hope for sexual freedom and sexual enjoyment. Having your own view about sex and sexuality, it's not going to free you. No matter what the culture tells you, it'll have the opposite effect. It will trap you. Fix your eyes on the same joy that Jesus set his eyes on. And the allure, the draw of doing things your way or culture's way will grow strangely dim over time. Verse 23, and then we'll wrap up. Solomon says that he will die for lack of instruction, and the greatness of his folly he will go astray. Solomon lets us know the final end for the fool, for the one who does not fear God, who rejects godly teaching. This fool will live unencumbered, sorry, encumbered and entangled. The fool, ironically, then will also think he's living his best life. He cannot see that in the 10 minutes of relating to him or her, that he has turned to the same thing for dependence 15 times. But he thinks he or she is living the best life, but he's living a dependent life. That's the greatness, the great irony of the folly. Solomon places the highest value. Actually, the highest value is putting yourself under. To go high, you got to go low. That's the gospel, right? To become great, you got to become the least. To 
The highest value is actually putting yourself under the right person. And the best of all men is Jesus himself. And Solomon says, this is a life and a death matter. It's that serious. He knows because he failed at it. And he has his harem as proof. It's a difference between the wise and the fool. So to receive instruction from God, even about lust and sex and adultery, you have to put yourself underneath God. You have to be bold by his spirit to say, I am out of tune today. I am sickly out of tune. And the chords that I'm playing are just terrible. i got to stop. And the only thing that can tune you is the word of our Lord Jesus. Over time, it's not one and done. It's not an invitation call and we're done. That's why we don't do invitation calls. It's a process. It's called sanctification. The wise receive instruction from God and the wise find refreshment in God because they know that he is present on every path they travel. The wise have Jesus as living water, but the fool rejects instruction. He rejects the idea that God is present wherever they go and rejects his son as living water. And the fool's end is death. But here's our hope today. God is always with you. Jesus said in his final moments for his ascension, he said, even to the ends of the age and even to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus promised in Matthew 28. And Jesus guaranteed this by crucifixion, death, and resurrection. All right. So here's your phone. This phone is discharging as we speak. It's a slow discharge, but it still is. Even with it, nothing going on. It is still slowly discharging, and you don't even know it. It's true. How are you going to charge it today, Heritage? Are you going to charge it your way? Are you going to charge it your creator's way? Here is your life. How are you going to order your desires? Your way or Jesus' way? That is the difference between thinking that this is ever going to work. And you throw it away and you say, all right, now I can charge. Oh, well, it's got three hours remaining until full charge. It's going to take some time, but that's okay. That's truly the wise life of delayed gratification. It's the wise life. So how are you going to order your desires? Your way or Jesus' way? The promise is experience Jesus as living water, and over time, your desires will be reordered. The struggles of my teenage years were not the struggles of my 20s, and the struggles of my 20s were not the struggles of my 30s. And as I am on the very cusp and edge, like I'm like right here to 40. I do know. I'm going to struggle in my 40s. But it's not going to be the struggles of my 30s. And on and on and on it goes, right? And you will find marriage, the beautiful covenant that God created for a man and a woman to be a fountain. And you will find joy in this life, and then you will find eternal life in the next. Amen?